Hello everybody, no particular special message today, got a lot of things going on in my life, and if you would like me to dedicate more time to it, then please, show what I am worth. I will still release things for free though, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to start dragging things out further and further. I understand that my content can be conceived as not worth that much value to really be of expense, I understand. However, I do encourage that if you do want to see more and more of this content, then please pay it's very cheap, my Patreon tiers. Check out the link and we can get to it. Thank you so much. Let's get into it. So last time out of the 64 item list, I covered items up to item 28. So now we're going to be covering items 29 to 37. That seems like a good number. Then after that, we're going to cover into some other topics. Item number 29 on the list is say the facts mean something completely different. For example, uh, a case of statistics fraud. What you want to do with this one is you want to take the statistics or the facts, and then you want to misrepresent the conclusion, which must be drawn from what you have understood therein. What this does is, is that also if anybody is not uh, versed in interpreting statistical data and analysis, is that you can become what comes of the facts and figures. Oh yes, the facts and figures that we put all our hope and trust in, the facts and the figures. What you want to do as well is you want to take all statistics and you want to take the statistics that suit you the most so you cherry pick statistics that you want to happen because there's a statistic for this or that all right i'm not saying that you shouldn't trust statistics what i'm saying is is that you can conveniently choose to cherry pick some of them whilst ignoring other ones especially when it comes to choosing sometimes the statistics that may have been taken from a terrible sample group or taken from a survey or taken from a matter of opinion or, or taken from merely the matter of a bad public publication, an archaic publication on very current things. It's very difficult to get past it when people can't look beyond those statistics, and those are the facts and figures. Number 30 is to create a big lie to counter all the small truths. Say all the truths are piling up and the big investigation is coming into a peak, a close, a climax, and you look like you're about to go to jail. So what's the story you spin? What's the narrative, you may ask? Well, you better come up with one fast. So when you do, make it an enormous lie. Put all those small little truths under a big lie umbrella. The best lie is the lie that has an inkling of truth in its foundations. And thus, with all these small truths popping up, I admit it, I finally admit it, and then you can put the lie insert whatever the lie is in there. So therefore, you take credit for revealing something that was hidden before, and you are admitting what's going on. But in reality, you've just covered up where the true conclusion should lead. Elsewise, you can implant a false conclusion if you you have the power structure and you are the source of information to people and you can spread this false conclusion that was concluded by the experts from the truths that are unfolding. Number 31. Demand a complete and flawless argument at the drop of a hat. If the argument is an absolute proof of the entire concept surrounding discussion, claim it should be thrown out. Now, this the big one that I remember this happening in was recently, if you weren't aware of it, in the world of academia and popular crediting for academia. There was a discussion over the existence of race. Yes, so this discussion, there was an argument therein. The argument basis was race doesn't exist. Prove race exists, you have to find me the genes. So you can't find me the genes? Okay, that means that we're all the same then. Well, no. No, what the hell? They take advantage of your inconvenience, whoever pulls this off. They take advantage of the inconvenience or the inadvantageousness of 
of the person who has taken the argument that they may not know so much of, but they understand that it must be so, but they can't remember for the life of them or they don't know the full picture. They can't pull up uh, the word-for-word -word reputable resource by which they can prove themselves. What has happened is at first you make a complete blanket denial of something. First of all, they haven't actually put forward anything to substantiate their claim. They just said that it doesn't exist. And then you are supposed to find the genes. What genes? Okay, sure, there's genetics involved, but what genes? What the hell? So that's a, it's enormous absolute proof that you have to find. You have to find the specific genes that mean that race is real. What does that mean? There are many different genetic combinations which can make up different racial figures. What, what, is, what does that mean? Remember, what I'm saying here is not to discredit or credit the argument that race is real or not real. What I'm saying is that this whole thing is constructed as pretty much a form of an unfair question. So you can't find the genes? Well, I guess that we're all the same then. You can't have an argument there that is absolute proof of what they're trying to claim. It would be a much more complex argument than just the demands they are making. But in more of a concept of this sort of thing being pulled, they're demanding a complete and flawless argument at the drop of a hat. And what that means is that they can just drop it on you. There are ways to infer the existence of race without having to look at the specific genetic combinations or specific groups of genetics and genes. You can just infer from other information you have available to identify the thing that X is supposed to prove. But they'll never take that because they want the absolute drop of the hat proof. You may not even remember, even people who are complete experts and masters in the field still have to recall what information was there by looking over their resources sometimes. They can't be just expected to just pick up everything that they understand and completely run it down at the drop of a hat. They need time to recollect. Because you fumble over something, they'll believe that you're, well, you're not able to be credited for it, and thus just dismiss you. Number 32. Change the subject. Abrasively or quietly. This should be an obvious one. How many times have you been in a conversation where the person you're conversing with, or another person who is conversing in the same room, has decided to just veer off the conversation, almost veer off the rails into something else? How many times has this been done, not necessarily to cause a train wreck, but to redirect from a busy street. How many times do you think this has been done in your life? Probably countless, right? You don't want to talk about that thing? Well, just veer it off. Change the subject. You either take the train off the rails and make it derail and cause cataclysm, or you quietly shift car around that other corner so you can avoid the traffic jam, avoid the tension, avoid the loud craze in front of you. But either way, you've changed the subject and you can be held responsible for veering things off track, should they have been on track in the first place. Number 33. Unsettle the opponent's emotions. Critique their morality, their character, or their education. This works best as bait when people realize you have ill intent or are wrong. Even if you're wrong, even if you are being perceived and understood and rightfully so assessed to have ill intent, you can bait them. You can bait them into becoming unstable, unsettled. Now, I have spoken before about making your opponent get emotional. But what you really want to do is you want to unsettle them. You want to go for the throat. You want to try and make it so that they they will not have any reason to leave. They will sit there and they will scathingly remark at you, critique their morality, their personality, their character, their education. Instead of just making it to be inflammatory, make it so that it's personal. And doing this, you start more of a grudge. And over time, this is the long game, because people see it as a grudge, they'll see it like this person hates this person because of this, and there'll be people on sides, and this one's right this time, and that one was right that time, and they'll see it kind of like a wrestling event whenever you come to terms with them again. Number 34, demand impossible levels of proof. Find an aspect of the problem which your opponent could not possibly prove. When you're doing this, 
you also want to consider, is there a way in which in which I can backtrack from the conclusion to reason, like say in a detective case, how some connection may have been somewhere, but completely veer it off into another track? You need to make sure that that explodes out in front of everybody. As well as that, you want to make sure that you cover something which is not going to be able to be proven. And I'm not sure exactly how to equate that to something of a metaphor or give you a case study. You want to make sure that they can't prove what is being tried to be proved. Number 35 is create and display false evidence. This also includes anecdotal evidence. Creating and displaying false evidence seems like a really crude and as well as a really dishonest tactic. But foolish evidence, really fake evidence has been happening in investigations for, I would argue, eons, I would argue, since investigations were a thing. There had to be somebody at some point who had to plant some sort of falsity or some sort of red herring or some sort of false trail otherwise than your own tracking back your own footsteps and going elsewhere to leave a false trail so this also includes anecdotal evidence and by that i mean you ha you can have witnesses quote unquote who speak for you and for your case who make up these stories make up these narratives that just are completely made up but tie into the original narrative enough so that it strengthens your position. This is very much a thing that is very obvious to most but you would never find it unless you did a thorough amount of investigation because you have the scrutiny of the evidence the same level either way if it's fake or real until you find out it's fake. Number 36. Create a distraction. When you create a distraction you put the listener's focus off. And by putting the focus off, you put at risk the ability of people to speak and coherently structure what is in front of them. Maybe you could pay attention beyond that tapping and scratching. But did you hear the whistling in the background? The faint whistling. Maybe you should go back and check it. Did you hear the faint whistling? There wasn't any whistling in the background. No, that, uh, this is a distraction. Do you understand what I'm doing? Point at hand is that you're supposed to be listening to what I'm saying. So create a distraction. And creating a distraction can get really involved. Like you can create a false flag or you can create a press event, or you can create a display of power, some distraction, to, some big show to make sure that people don't see what you're doing. It all depends on what scale you want to go for the scale of the event. If you need to do something really big, then you have a really big event. That makes sense. It's logical. If you need to do something really small, then it's a really particularly small thing you need to do. Makes sense. But hold on, what about if I'm doing something that's really small, but qualitatively it's incredibly important, like I'm stealing crucial files from a very tightly secured locked set, or I'm stealing a certain amount of money from an underground vault whilst there is a huge parade on the surface to guise the sound of my tools. Well, that's just it. You have to assess it quantitatively and qualitatively, the relevant metrics as to how big it is, and then you need to assess what sort of distraction you need for it. Number 37, silence and report critics. Don't live up to critical examination, even if you are performing it yourself. This one should be obvious. You need to silence and report your critics. Now, that means that you need to go whatever means, whether legal or illegal. I'm not encouraging you to do this, by the way. Again, I'm saying this as terms of what you would want to do if you would want to do it. You need to go to whatever methods you want to try and silence and report them that may be illegal or legal. But whatever methods they are, you need to make sure that they don't speak and they don't have presence. And silencing doesn't just mean that you're gagging them under a gag order. Silencing means that they cannot communicate in any way, that they are silent. And in doing so, you need to use more often than not some force pressure or some authority to use their force upon them to remove them from the group. Remember, don't live up to critical examination, even if you are performing it yourself. You don't necessarily have to live up to 
critical examination. You just have to be extremely critical of others. And in that way, you need to create a culture around the unquestionability of yourself. So then you may have this so where you don't have to live up to these rules, but the others who you consistently, constantly, and passionately criticize and critically examine will suffer and not you. They will suffer and not you. Hey you, are you concerned about genocide? I'm concerned about genocide. I would be very concerned about genocide if I were you. Here's why. I'm going to tell you 12 different steps to creating genocide where people don't find it convenient to call it that. And I'm going to give you some quotes that you can find the ad-libs in. The first item is question and minimize the statistics. X are the majority in X countries. Their population is going up and not down. Attack the motivations of the truth tellers. These are just crazy claims from X and Y. Claim that the deaths were inadvertent. There is no coordinated plan to eliminate the X race. That is just a conspiracy theory. Emphasize the strangeness of the victims. X people have historically enjoyed disproportionate Y. Now their countries are just becoming more like the rest of us. Rationalize the deaths as the result of tribal conflict. X are just worried that they will no longer enjoy the privileges of being an ethnic majority. There's no genocide. Blame out of control forces for committing the killings. Most of these immigrants are peaceful and hardworking. Ex-extremism is a very small minority and does not represent the immigrant population. Avoid antagonizing the genocidists who might walk out of the peace process. Reconciliation is the first step towards solving issues of race in this place. We must learn to live together. Justifying denial in favor of current economic interests. Immigrants are crucial to our economic recovery. Immigrants perform jobs most people do not want and spend money that helps grow the economy. Claim that the victims are receiving good treatment. Ex-people today are still well above average in terms of education and financial success. Claim that what is going on doesn't fit the definition of genocide. Mass immigration isn't the same as genocide. Genocide is the destruction of a people. Blame the victims. Ex-people should atone for their history of discrimination and privilege. Accepting refugees and immigrants from less fortunate places is crucial to this process. Say that peace and reconciliation are more important than blaming people for genocide. The most important thing is that people from all cultures that can learn to live together peacefully. There is no reason for a crazy ex-genocide witch hunt. Ex-people. And so now the veil has been lifted. And so now you must go out there and you must assess whether or not these things are being said because in this age of uh, globalization, it may just be that you're at risk. Go find out. There's a variety of reasons to be wary of the governments of the world. However, whenever we try to talk about a greater scheme of things, the once again iconic conspiracy theory claim comes up in regards to what people have said and therefore it's most of the time ignored. What if I told you that in South Korea, a conspiracy was proven to be right? Okay, I'm not going to say that it was the total conspiracy theory that was proven to be right. However, it's very much on the ball. If you've not heard about it, it was the eight goddesses controversy and it does go back to the usual groups that I mentioned 
mentioned in these greater circles of conspiracy. So I'm just going to mention to you from a confession that was made on an image board that I'm not even going to say the name of because you know it by now about what happened. It does have some articles here talking about the situation. I should say that. Here we go. This person was a Korean since two to three years ago. As of about 2016, there was an ancient aliens tier rumor. President Park was indoctrinated and been controlled by a handful of secret society people called the Eight Goddesses and they were ruling Korea from behind the scenes. So this was all, you know, found to be very funny, haha, or was found to be like a crude funny joke or a rumor or was found to be a conspiracy theory and thus ignored, right? Suddenly, on the 27th of the 10th of 2016, a week ago from then, a whistleblower confirmed that it was actually real. Yeah, there was really this clique, this group called the uh, Eight Goddesses, and they were controlling some things, some pulling some real big strings. Isn't that crazy? You'd hate to hear about it, but there you go. Uh, this this conspiracy proves to be getting somewhere. Eight powerful Korean billionaire women formed a secret society, and they ruled Korea from behind the veil. The whistleblower stole a computer and tablets from them, opened it to the media, confirming that they did all of it. They made decisions from Park's text of speeches, reforming taxes by their own, maintaining national treasury, or deciding every diplomatic move from toe to toe, assigning secretaries and ministers by their own. Only one member of the eight goddesses had their identity confirmed. Its former psychic woman named Choi Sun Sil. I think that's how you say it. C-H-O-I-S-U-N hyphen S-I-L. According to the leak, she indoctrinated President Park since the age of 23, which sounds crazy, but uh, this whole thing sounds kind of insane. Whoa, dude, it's uh, it's pretty far out there, huh? Yeah, a psychic woman who's a member of the secret society indoctrinated the president. And uh, this person, apparently, they ain't even joking. That's that's pretty maddening, but hey, it it is a crazy world out there. Uh, At this point, I personally would believe this sort of stuff. Everyone didn't believe this. It's, it's anime, I quote the person, anime plot tier batshit insane absurd news. Then suddenly President Park made a news conference the day before this was posted and they confirmed the leak was real and they asked forgiveness. This is a headline from straightstimes.com. Yes, straightstimes.com. And it's a troubling revelations about Seoul's shadow president, the Korea Herald columnist. <laughs> and uh, we also have here another article with a headline, from english.honey.co.korea. It's actually a system where Choice and Seal tells the president what to do. So a country's president confirmed that they're an indoctrinated person by the secret society at a news conference in very crass and blatant terms. That was what basically confirmed. So everybody started to panic. People started to get their things together and they gathered information about them. After digging, it's confirmed that many, there's a lot of swearing in this and I know I have to stop swearing. Many loads of men are in jail right now for leaking the truth about the eight goddess. Politicians who are in jail right now mentioned Choi and eight goddesses right before they went to jail. People found photos that Choi escorting Park since her age of the early 20s. Diggings found U.S. Ambassador Report documents. It's saying Choi Tae-min, which is Choi sun Sil's father, is fully in control of Park's body and soul. That's uh, that's that's pretty dire. Choi sun Sil's whereabouts was a mystery. She was somewhere in Germany. Politicians and whistleblowers tried to warn people about them years ago when nobody listened. The whole country were panicking and the government lost its ability to process things. And from this, there were more leaks to come. It it seems like it's not real life. It seems like it's just the plot of an anime or it's the plot of some cartoon, right? It seems completely out of the blue and strange. But here we go. A swirling scandal involving a shamanistic cult threatened the South Korean president. Crazy stuff, huh? I bet you start looking into those bonfires.
won't you? Slippery slope arguments. Now, what is a slippery slope argument? I'm sure you know it well, but let me just explain it for a moment. A slippery slope argument is putting forward the analysis of what's going on right now and then saying that a future event will happen while there is no logical connection to be found between the current event and the future event and it is merely a suspicion or it is merely a conjecture or it is merely someone's fear speaking for them. There is no logical reason inside the statement to believe that what would initially be said, which is what initially is going on, is going to lead to such an intense or extreme example of what is to come, because it is often an intense or extreme example of what could be. And people will be quick to point out a slippery slope argument because it is a logical fallacy. The problem with slippery slope arguments is that necessarily speaking of what I've just described to you, yes, that is a logical fallacy, but that doesn't get rid of the contextual or the greater element to why the thing is that is being worried about. And that itself can lead into a future problem, which is why people say that the slippery slope accusation is a meaningless one, because there are greater concepts at play which form an umbrella, and this umbrella encompasses things on a fairly even level for the people who start from that fine jumping off point of a concept. So say that you're into liberalisation of the polity, you're into liberalisation of the peoples and what they can do, that encompasses more than just letting them have uh, a say, or letting them practice and do certain things that were otherwise the property and the actions of the scholarly class. These movements can encompass wider and wider the allowances of people to do things, and they come from a more general framework. They come from a more general idea. These general ideas go down towards the specifics. To then continue my description of why the slippery slope can kind of still happen, when we're talking about something that goes on with slippery slope, these things often chain together. There isn't a logical thought to suddenly think that the first analysis, the first stated thing that is happening right now will continue onto the proposed future. But what will happen is the current thing will get more and more intense, and whatever is to be associated with that will continue to grow in intensity, thus because that is, well, that's logical, wouldn't it be? The things which aren't directly in line with the argument, but are still in line with the thing that was started from the beginning of the argument, will continue to go along, even if they're just uh, peripherally, if they've just correlated rather than causal. And that is the problem that we're trying to think about when we think about how the logical fallacy of a slippery slope argument can actually be not a logical fallacy at all. It is not necessarily that the logical fallacy plays out there and then is cancelled. What it is, is the logical fallacy can still kind of true, but it's a very linear and very uh, finite scope of understanding. The truth is, is that the more intensity you bring towards the people who are allowed to do something, the more the correlated or the more the intense elements of being allowed to do that present themselves. That's just the way it is. As much as people may think that these things are in a vacuum and they're completely unrelated, it doesn't work that way. And I'm sorry if you do think that way. It's a bit naive. This is part of why, in very general terms I have described to you, without giving examples, because the only examples I can give are offensive ones, but they are true. This is why I say this to you. Think about it. Think about something in the past that has made it so that you have been accused of putting forward a slippery slope argument. And and then think where that particular thing ended up, and did it end up around the trajectory of what you predicted, but through a peripheral, through a correlated thing instead of a directly causal thing, of the group, of the associated peoples, of the thing that you were speaking of, whatever it is. So it had to be correlated, or it had to be peripheral, it had to be alongside it, not necessarily it itself. And I will bet 
that if you were arguing 10 years ago, you would find that now that indeed that slippery slope prediction has actually come true. It's worrying. Not everything is a matter of analyzing it logically, because sometimes you have to look at it illogically, and you can see why people have done it, because they do things illogically. Say that you don't like a part of the populace. Say that you don't want them to continue doing what they're doing, or you don't like how they're doing things, but you can't attack them directly. Well then, here's the thing. You can either get the people to do it for you, or you can do it. But a good way to do this, a good way to perform a restriction upon these people is to just do that. Restrict them. The further and further you restrict people down into a corner, the less and less they have they can do within the society that you hold power in. However, what you have to do at the same time is word it and do it in ways that don't directly assault or directly discriminate towards those people. By that I mean it doesn't directly put them in the limelight and attack them. It may make example of them, which itself you may construe as attacking, but instead what you want to do is you want to have other people shaming them for what they're doing and saying the people who would do that in a perspective not as the subject but of the group that anybody who would be doing that is doing the wrong thing. Those who align with this group are doing the wrong thing. This much seems very obvious. People often forget that and they forget it because they think of it as to be the people who will be excluded. They will be people who are targeted directly. They will be the people who will be under the barrel of the gun. But the reality is is that it's much easier and it happens a lot quieter if you just keep walling them in. If you just keep putting up restrictions and restrictions around them and shaming the general group instead of any particular people unless you want to make an example and then you attack the particular people who are the figureheads of the group. The reality is that you don't have to necessarily lay a finger upon these people. You can make them and their lives defunct by just, well, putting the walls closer and closer around them whilst saying that you are not directly attacking them. Because you aren't. All you're doing is closing in the walls. You're not throwing a spear over the wall into them. Watch out for that. It's the kind of thing that creeps up, and it's the kind of thing that stops people from, or it inhibits them from living their life and their livelihood. It's scary, and once you realize it's happening to you, you don't know how to get out of it. Because instead of just being a direct attack which you can avoid or defend yourself against, they have the upper hand. Because you can't defend yourself. How would you? You haven't been directly attacked. If you've been made an example of, there is no way you can defend yourself. Consider that, and be careful. Why is it, do you think, that libertarians don't often win positions of power? The answer is simple. Libertarians promise a utopia that defends itself from utopian peoples. Libertarians provide a state that doesn't exist for the role of something that people, for the majority, would not be able to do without a state. Libertarianism provides for a society and a vision of society that will instantaneously be covered by a theoretical approach in all defensive situations. Libertarianism advocates for the use of privacy in a world where public things are what rule and have ruled for a very, very long time. And as much as we may talk about corporations and banks that rule, they are in bed with the public entity that is allowed to be used as a vessel for their rule. The problem with libertarians is that they never got their hands out of the ideas. They never got their heads out of the books. The problem with libertarians is that there is a pipeline associated with them because they just aren't practical. A lot of their ideas are revolutionary and would excel for any man or woman trying to create a micro scale operation. But that's just it. It's a lot of micro. You can't put things in the hands of all that micro and expect things not to be a utopian expectation. And the overhauls and change required of the current system would be deafening, landing on most people's ears. And that's the practicality. And it's painful, but that's the reality. Even if it was purely an idealistic scenario where the idealism that they have, the theory that they have, were to be fulfilled 
fulfilled that we can call the people who wouldn't do it lazy or dissenters or people who aren't going along with the plan, there really isn't an easy way to get to it. And there is foreign powers who would never, ever, currently sitting, resort to what has been proposed. They would even fake it in order for you to do it first. I know, these aren't particularly arguments against libertarianism, and these aren't particularly arguments against the ideology within. But there is a reason why it is that there is something called the libertarian to alt-right pipeline. It's not because they hate black people. It's not because they hate brown people. It's not because they are racist or they're sexist. It's not because of that. Although that can lie in both groups. It depends, really. The reason why is that they see the inevitability of the utopian expectation and its downfall of society after it has tried to be fulfilled. They see that the solutions require the government apparatus to be structured in another way and that the ideas that are touted by the most extreme libertarians and the ideas that are touted by the most extreme libertarians counteract that which is the ideas of the people who live in this dystopian time period. Well, that's how they see it as, at least. This clown world. Maybe one day we will be able to have all those micro-communities, those micro-nations that gather together. Maybe one day we can have a completely atomistic, individualistic setup of people. But that's way too far in the future to be thought of now. And there are a lot of things we have to forget, like identity and unity and nations, in order for that to prosper, that libertarian idea. And for that, people won't take it. Libertarians get shunned by the left and right because they're seen as pussies. A lot of the arguments against libertarians come from people who aren't actually making good arguments. But the problem is the arguments libertarians make, while can be very intriguing and alluring, rely on the idea of a utopian opponent and a utopian participant, utopian competitors. It's disgusting to think the world isn't like it is how the libertarians project it, but that is the world. And I don't mean to use a Soviet-style practicality where it's shit, it's fucked, we should just fall over and do the worst. I don't mean to say that like that. But the reality is that we need more than what they provide and what they donate to us. I am no longer a libertarian, and I have not been a libertarian for a very long time. I still believe in some of the things that they've put forward, but I found myself going more toward Hopper than Rothbard. Now we're going to take a rule that I'm going to call time to shine. Say you're out there protesting, say you're out there doing something that someone doesn't approve of, say a Karen's got their phone on you and they're filming you up in your face, something like that, okay? Well look, what you want to do is you want to start saying really inappropriate names of events that have happened or start saying things that are inappropriate to be broadcasted or put on social media. You want to do that because you don't really care how anyone else sees you, right? You're already being put on video and put on social media anyway. You're not going to run up to them and try to take the phone off them because then you look like you're trying to assault them and they can make that into a thing. You don't sit there and try to go, oh no, I didn't do it, I didn't do it because then you look weak or you look like you're denying something and you're lying. If you say, oh yeah, I did do it, what are you going to do, huh? Then you look like you're an aggressive character and that can be really bad for your reputation. So instead, all you want to do is you want to make it so that they can't put that in broadcast or they can't put that on social media. I'm not saying flash them or do any public nudity. Although that might work, don't do that. That's illegal. Instead, what you want to say is keywords and phrases that can't be included. Do you really care if these keywords and phrases have put you under the bus? I would imagine not. Because at this point, if you're willing to do it, you're willing to say whatever it is so that they get their broadcast broadcast taken off, so that they get their video taken off, their media taken off. What I would suggest is that there's a lot of things that you can't talk about today, so just start rattling them off. Keep a little pocket list in your wallet, if you will. Keep a little list of things that you can rattle off when someone starts putting a phone in your face because you're, say, scrubbing graffiti off of a memorial. Just little tiny details of events and things that aren't allowed to be said. And what can they do? Can they get angry at you? That's the point. If they get angry at you, then that's even better, because then you can make them look like an angered, crazy 
crazy fool. And that's just entertainment as well as being successful. The reason you don't want to just ignore them is that they will probably follow you and they might continue to arc you up or they might continue to antagonize you. And then at worst, people will see you, you as the person who started this. And if it gets picked up anyway, even if you just walk away, that still looks guilty to some people because they'll accuse you of a crime before they have proof. If you just walk away, it makes you look guilty. You need to get a little list of things you can't say, events you can't talk about, and you need to start saying them loud and proud. Not too loud, obviously. Just talk like you normally would when someone like that has just come up to shove their phone camera in your face and do the tisk-tisk about your moral shortcomings or something. Have you ever heard the saying that ignorance of the law is not justification of an act? Well, how about ignorance is the justification for the law? No. Well, I imagine you haven't. Laws are passed and set by government. They aren't necessarily set in stone because they are set in truth or in set in good rather than evil or are set in even the command of the greater government or concern of the government process, the legislative process. Laws are set in stone, or just a pile of mud, barely fired bricks. What I'm getting at is that stupidity is often a lot more malicious than it sounds. And governments will take whatever choices they want to make stupidity and unaccountability through a large bureaucratic, large legislative structure to do whatever they wish without a necessary consequence. Because stupidity is something that everybody can accuse them of, even if they have obviously done wrong. And then the people who argue against this stupidity, very rarely without going through all the bureaucracy, have a say and a change to stop said stupidity. Further and further into democracy of the 21st century, we have found that people accuse the government, all governments of stupidity. But you have to start thinking in hypothetical terms that the stupidity is purposeful, that it's malicious. You have to start thinking that they hire people, that they are people who will start using stupidity as a device for you to criticize and argue against. And then you go out there and you say, oh, how dumb are they? But you never really do much of anything about it. You may protest against it, but the ones who are truly out there protesting and getting things done, they become the minority and the loudest voice are the people protesting who are on the side of the people who are using maliciously this same level of stupidity. Of course, it's very stupid what that official did. It's very stupid what those lawmakers have put into law. It's very stupid what the average person has voted for this time. But that's it. There's a lot of factors that go into controlling that stupidity to emerge. It's not just random stupidity. Don't believe that. In a position of power like that, well, it could be prevalent, but it certainly wouldn't be that influential. And if it is that influential, then they're abiding it anyway. So even if it was genuine stupidity, why should you just think of it as stupidity that you can just throw away as being, oh, we'll change him next election, or, oh, we can't stand that sort of thing. I mean, we'll go along with it because we have to, but I don't agree and I think they're dumb. At least I'm right. You need to abandon that mentality. If you see that there's something really dumb going on, you need to think, who would benefit from something really dumb going on? Who would benefit from this stupidity perpetuating? Don't think of stupidity as being innocent. Think of stupidity as being willful ignorance. Think of stupidity as being the implementation of people who want idiots or idiocy to reign. A dumbfoundedness. An inability to listen. Inability to think because it suits them. Start thinking that way. And a lot of times your lectures about how, oh, the government did the wrong choice this time, they're so dumb, will become, the government did the wrong choice this time, and this is why they did it, so they can acquire this, and this is their path forward, and this is what we have to combat. People often ask, what sort of dystopian world are we living in? Well, it's a combination of many. People say we're living in uh, Animal Farm. People say we're living in 1984. People say we're living in Brave New World. They say we're living in a or 
Orwellian or a Huxleyan society. People say we're living in Fahrenheit 451. People say we're living in Brazil. People say we're living in some form of dystopia. We're living in Wally. Yeah, let's just add another dystopia to the mix because people often attribute the dystopia that they can find to our current world. But the main ones that usually get brought up, at least in my experience, are Orwellian and Huxleyan. Orwellian and Huxleyan dystopia. What is the difference between those two? I'm going to trust that you know and understand the difference between the two. But let me give you a very crude understanding of what that means. An Orwellian dystopia is like 1984. The government is an all-seeing eye that has surveillance upon all things. They conjure up wars and conflicts for people to shout and cry and have their anger expelled for. They have the worship of their state party. They have newspeak, which means contradictory terms are still sanctioned by the government and made okay. They have people in very bleak reality, uh, factory jumpsuits and uniforms and very exclusive castes above the proletariat, the proles, and people can't think or feel unless it is sanctioned by the government in a certain way. Then we have the Huxleyan world. The Huxleyan world is from Brave New World. The Huxleyan world is essentially a pseudo-utopia. It is the presentation that there is no privacy, there is no monogamy, there is no parents. It is all simply a futuristic world where all the people frolic together, have sex together, and whenever they feel down, whenever they feel bad, whenever their entertainment, the bread and circus you may call it, the entertainment which distracts them, cannot distract them any longer. The sensations, the thrill of Epicureanism, cannot distract them any longer from reality. They take a happy pill. This happy pill is called Soma. So people say we live in a Huxleyan, Orwellian world, they debate over it. The truth is that we live in one that is a mix of the two. The Huxleyan world is for when people are obeying. The Orwellian world is for when people go out of line. But the Orwellian world is ever-present, and so is the Huxleyan world. Because the Orwellian world acts as a shell. It acts as a fortification around the Huxleyan world. The Huxleyan world doesn't necessarily cause violence to be in betwixt the commoners, bread and circus, all the sensations therein. The Huxleyan world peer pressures you and casts you out for being an outsider, not following the rules, and taking your soma, taking your sensations, just indulging yourself. World is what keeps that under control. It is the force and the violence behind things. Not to say there isn't force and violence in Huxley's work, and in fact you should read the original books. And if you don't like reading, well there's very palatable films and movies of both. Although I will say the recent TV adaptation of Brave New World veered quite far enough from the literature, but that doesn't necessarily make it bad, and I actually find it quite underrated. It's a more modern adaptation than it is a basing on the book, but I digress. We're living in an Orwellian and a Huxleyan dystopia. But I suggest that you look up on historical examples of dystopias and you connect them to ours. Something you can find in dystopia is not necessarily how to get past the dystopian problem, but to diagnose what there is for inspiration to cause it. There is a conspiracy theory that things like Huxley's work and Orwell's work was used to frame and create the current issues of today. This is based on the idea that Orwell was a socialist, and thus the socialistic governments of today, the conspirators were not mine, are the ones creating this 1984 type surveillance and watching and monitoring and mock up wars that make people die for profit or gain for the people in power, for the castes in power, to control people, what they think, what they feel. Now, I mentioned earlier the concept of a libertarian to alt-right pipeline. You go from being a normal person who is invested in politics into most often a libertarian if they go to the right wing, and then towards whatever else afterwards. It doesn't necessarily have to be right wing as a continuation. Some continuations of after becoming a libertarian include anarcho-capitalism, minarchy, monarchy, absolute, elective, constitutional, whatever it is, fascism, national socialism, national Bolshevism, Strasserism, 
phalangism, which now we're getting into the further left ideologies. We're going further left, the monarchism, paleo-republicanism, which isn't neo-republican, it is a different thing. Why do they end up going this way? Because the ideas of libertarianism act as a primer to see what's wrong with the world, but they don't fully satisfy what they truly want to be done. And even anarcho-capitalists are guilty of this. The ideas of libertarianism are too anti-anarchy sometimes for them. It is understandable that these groups may hate each other, but ultimately there's a lot of similarity in the people who come to join them. I'm not saying put these people on a watch list as they're libertarian, but I am saying that pipeline tends to exist, and it's quite a common path for people to take. They go from being any other political position, and then they become sort of a libertarian, and then they use that as a pipeline to go into their preferred mode of government afterwards or lack of thereof. Is there any political manipulation or subversion here in order for them to do that? Well, I wouldn't argue so. Instead, I'd simply argue that propaganda is at fault for this, and propaganda isn't necessarily good or bad. Propaganda can be a tool to truly illustrate the political opponent as they are. Propaganda can be a tool to truly illustrate the opponent or the subject of your choice as they are in a political fashion about what should be done with them from the government or the body that should be in governing as per the propaganda puts forward. Now the problem here is that I may get flack for saying that, that propaganda is innately bad. Well it's not necessarily. Propaganda can indeed tell the truth where the others will tell a lie. And another thing too, violence isn't necessarily a bad a good thing, as much as pacifists or otherwise would like to argue. Violence can indeed solve issues. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem at hand when it is employed, but sometimes violence becomes the only answer, and violence is the only thing that will keep you alive. Violence isn't necessarily bad, but you must understand that the world thinks this way, and they are fine with using the implication of violence. And people who are further right, people who go towards things like monarchy, sometimes would be more attuned towards the ideas of using direct and honest violence, rather than using a dishonest violence, a murderous rage instead of a righteous killing, so to speak. The people who go further to the right may be more conditioned to think in the way of going after the right people. They may be propagandized to think that what they're doing is a whole war, or what they're doing is a wholly righteous reckoning of vengeance to be had. And then we get things like the Islamic fundamentalists who do the same thing. There's a lot of ways to convince people that violence can be right, because violence isn't necessarily right or wrong. Those who say that violence is innately wrong, and say at the same time that terrorists must be dispatched and dealt with, are completely contradictory in deploying soldiers to fight them. Truth is, some people will not respond to words, and violence must be employed in order to change the problem. And the right, historically, has been better at utilizing violence to get what they want than they have necessarily political manipulation and subversion through words or peaceful conditions. This is where people start to accept the idea of violence being acceptable. And this all loops back to libertarianism, where violence and its usage, propaganda and its usage, starts to support the state and support violent, that being not peaceful means of solving problems, which goes against libertarian ideas, even though they may have their own ideas of violence and utilizing firearms and utilizing them for self-defense. Violence is, as part of the ideology, as a net whole of libertarianism and its inspirations and offshoots, something that is shunned. It is something that is not taken upon as something other than completely necessary in a defensive situation. But to them, they will go to extreme lengths to ignore it. For the power of the government and the state is backed by the threat, by the standing power of violence, and the authority therein is kept in check because of violence. You can follow God's law all you want, the most righteous of things, but at the end of the day, there are evil people who will not do that. There are two universal languages in this world, mathematics and violence, and I suggest you learn both of them. Learn when to use them, and learn that the law will come down on you regardless of whether or not you use them rightly or justly so.
regardless if you are logical or reasonable. Rational. The law will come down for utilizing it out of turn, as the violent rule will not have it so that you use violence out of turn. In the same fashion that the right has historically, and in idealism, preferred to use honest and straightforward violence, we find dishonest violence on their side too. But I would wager there's a lot more of dishonesty in the ideas of the utopianism. The ideas of the post-enlightenment do no harm the left, which may include libertarianism too, even though libertarianism is not necessarily left or right. The left may employ a lot of political subversion and tactics because the left are used to be working with people who aren't necessarily strong, who aren't necessarily abiding by the laws of nature, who aren't necessarily willing or even capable of doing these things. They stand for the little man, you know? They stand for the worker. They stand for people who do not have the power, the violence. And so they have found ways in which they can gain power and thus have the positions that can administer the violence by their very smart and very capable political subversion tactics that they invent. There are ones that have been invented and done by the right, but the left is the best at this game. And I would not discredit them for the amazing accomplishments they've had by being able to work in a system of peace, quote, End quote, peace, and get rid of the dissenters and the counter-revolutionaries because they threaten the quote-end-quote peace. I have no idea what my listener base is like, a line left or right, but anybody who is on the left, quote-unquote, left, must admit at least that the left is historically, and is now, much better at playing the game of politics that doesn't involve obvious threats. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Let's just say that they're very good at law. I'm going to be looking at some words to say about Wikipedia, but I'm going to get to them next. What I'm going to be covering initially is about astroturfing. What is astroturfing? Astroturfing is a carefully constructed narrative by unseen special interests designed to manipulate your opinions. A Truman Show-esque alternate reality is all around you. Astroturfing is used a lot more than you think, and social engineering, that being the engineering of your opinions and the engineering of how people interact, can be utilized and can be expressed through astroturfing. Complacency in the news media, combined with incredibly powerful propaganda and publicity forces, means we sometimes get little of the truth. Special interests have unlimited time and money to figure out new ways to spin us while cloaking their role. Astroturfing is when special interests disguise themselves and publish blogs, create Facebook or Twitter accounts, publish ads, letters to the editor, or simply post comments online to try to fool you into thinking grassroots movement is speaking. They attack news organizations, the public stories they don't like, whistleblowers who tell the truth, politicians who dare to ask the tough questions. Astroturfers sometimes simply shove, intentionally, so much confusing and conflicting information into the mix that you're left to throw up your hands and disregard all of it, including the truth. Then they use inflammatory language such as quack, lies, paranoid, conspiracy. They often claim to debunk quote-unquote myths that are not myths at all, and they will debunk anything, even if it's right in front of you. Beware when interests attack an issue by controversializing or attacking the people, personalities and organizations surrounding it, rather than addressing the facts. Most of all, astroturfers tend to reserve all their public skepticism for those exposing wrongdoing rather than for the wrongdoers. This is where we get to Wikipedia. Wikipedia is the free encyclopedia. It's free for those who edit it. And the ones who edit it are supposed to be the people who take part in editing. That means anyone. It's supposed to be anyone can edit this free encyclopedia. That's not actually the truth. There is a clique of Wikipedia editors, and there are some people who have sole control and almost entire ownership over certain pages. Anonymous Wikipedia editors control and co-opt pages on behalf of special interests. They forbid and reverse edits that go against their agenda. They skew and delete information in blatant violation of Wikipedia's own established policies, with impunity, as always. Superior to the poor schmucks who actually believe anyone can edit Wikipedia, only to discover they're barred from correcting even the 
the simplest factual inaccuracy. Or this may be why, when a medical study looked at medical conditions described in Wikipedia pages and compared it to actual peer-reviewed published research, Wikipedia contradicted medical research 90% of the time. You may never fully trust what you read on Wikipedia again, nor should you. Quoted from Cheryl Atkinson, an investigative journalist. I did shorten down the information about the astroturfing. There is more to be said there, but it is true that Wikipedia serves as the free encyclopedia that is of the illusion that people can edit it willy-nilly and that everyone is an editor when it comes to this place. There are small cliques, large groups, and there are even single editors who pretty much control the entirety of pages. And it's true. You can go into certain pages and you can redirect back to links you've visited before or direct forward to links of relevant topics that are hyperlinked to the page. And you can get a completely different understanding, a completely different take on the greater thing that you're trying to understand, or a completely different description of what it is that is linked and what it is that was on the original page. There is a lot of political conflict with this free encyclopedia, and that can get very difficult if you're trying to do a research assignment, an academic assignment, but it can also get extremely difficult because Wikipedia is incredibly open. It is free to use. So, what that means is that it's very convenient, and people will often look at Wikipedia as almost an authoritative source. They will look to it, and it is academically known that using Wikipedia as a basis and not looking at the sources that were used is not good practice, to say the least. You shouldn't be looking directly at the Wikipedia page, but rather the sources that were linked to that claim. But the problem is, too, is that we have people who will willingly remove these citations and will willingly ask for a citation for a claim that could be pretty obvious given the other resources on the page because the whole thing is a very editable propaganda machine, if you think about it, dropping the links towards extra things that have been written in there. They can start controlling the flow of information that goes to everybody, which is the most convenient flow of information because it's free, because it's Wikipedia. It's free, it's convenient, and it's to almost anybody who has an internet access, the easiest way to look up a quick detail about a historical event or person in their life. And that's kind of scary to be honest, for as little trust as put in academically, it has an enormous amount of influence. And where would you find the alternative sources? It's quite hard. You go to the Wikipedia, because the Wikipedia has everything there that you should trust. Surely they have moderators and know what they're doing. There are organizations that can be brought up that can give people the impression that there's widespread support for or against an agenda when there actually isn't. What this means is that you can have organizations prop up who are supposed to represent a crowd or a group or an organization that is politically active, but they're not. They may have been started by the opposite end. They may have been started by a federal agency trying to get people lured into a honeypot. If you don't know what a honeypot is, a honeypot is, say, an organization or a group or a situation or a setting that is very sweet to the scent. When you stick your finger in, it gets all over you. If you're a sweet fly looking for something to eat, you can get stuck in the honey, die. Honeypots come about in the atmosphere, which is capable of hosting astroturfing. Thank you so much for listening. I know that I may have not been on schedule. There's been a few problems in my life, but I'm not going to throw them onto you now, would I? So, I've made a plan. Hopefully, it is so that every Sunday, Australian Eastern Time, I am going to be releasing a new episode that should be weekly. I'll try and dedicate myself to doing that, and I will try to release it around midday, so hopefully I keep to that schedule. If you want to support me, then please, I have a Patreon listed. The lowest tier is a dollar. Go ahead, and if you give me an extra income source, I will be inclined to not only increase the amount of uploads that I have commonly, but I may even bring to light things that you want me to bring to light. I may even cover topics that you want me to cover. If there's any way that you can help out someone who is homeless, I strongly advise that you take the action to do it. That's all I'm going to say. Goodbye, and I hope that you hear from me soon. Thank you.